So friends, we are beginning our journey with the Beatitudes today, and our scripture comes to us from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 3 through 4. Listen and hear how God is still speaking through these ancient words. Happy are people who are hopeless because the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Happy are people who grieve because they will be made glad. This is the word of God for the people of God. We say together, thanks be to God. Will you please pray with me and for me? Holy Spirit, you are here. Holy Spirit, speak to us as a church community and speak the word that each of us individually needs to hear. Holy Spirit, may all that I say point us toward greater union and intimacy with you, the lover of our soul. Amen. Thousands of years before Jesus said these words that we just read, there was a man named Jacob. And Jacob had been traveling to a new land. And Jacob had a dream. And then he wakes up in this new land and says, the Lord is definitely in this place, but I didn't know it. The Lord is definitely in this place, but I did not know it. Fascinating words. God showing up in places where we would at least expect to find God. Friends, that's what these Beatitudes are. They call us to take dispositions like being poor in spirit or like our common English Bible translated it as hopeless. And they call us to take actions like grieving. Poor in spirit, grieving, they are places that we would never expect to find God. But here Jesus is saying that that is right where we find him and right where he is waiting for us with blessings. These Beatitudes are the beginning of perhaps Jesus's most famous sermon that he would ever give. And it's traditionally called the Sermon on the Mount because he goes and walks toward, if not a mountain, at least a elevated hill. And the thing about 
a hill or a mountain is that when you start to climb up it, the air gets thinner. It's harder to breathe. In the words of Dr. A. J. Levine, to go up to the mountain is to risk one's balance. Our ears might pop. You might get dizzy. You might try. Or we might hear something we cannot handle. Making the climb is the first step, and it is already a commitment. Staying on the summit and realizing we could do even more requires more courage. And letting that experience transform us, transfigure us, that is scarier still. But the effort is worthwhile. The vista is gorgeous, and we become cities on a hill. But we're not there yet. So that's what we're going to do here at Grace. Going to have courage for the next four weeks. Travel the mountain of these beatitudes so that we can see more of the beauty of who Jesus is and the journey he invites us to. Now, admittedly, these beatitudes sound more like curses than blessings. But we can find that God is in these type of places, even when we don't see it at first. Because when Jesus gave this sermon more than 2,000 years ago, the people who were listening were trying to figure out what have they done. What did they just sign up for? <laughs> They're listening to this guy. Some are probably even trying to figure out, is Jesus even worth following? Others are trying to figure out, I just gave up my life to follow this guy. What's going to happen? And then they hear a message like this. And I'm going to guess, and I think it's a safe guess, that a lot of them would have had, at the very least, some questions. Because these eight truths are not easy to stomach. And yet they are allegedly how we experience blessing. They are a blueprint for how we follow Jesus. And the first beatitude states, happy are people who are hopeless because the kingdom of heaven is theirs. So let's set the scene. Jesus is speaking to first century Jews who are under the thumb of the Roman Empire. Their human dignity was under daily threat. They could just be walking outside and a Roman soldier could approach them and tell them that you are going to carry my gear for the next mile. The Romans were successful and powerful. The Jews were poor and lowly. And Jesus is telling them, you, the poor and lowly, are blessed. This beatitude, again usually translated as poor in spirit, is a declaration of dependence. 
It's an assault on our ideology of self-sufficiency. Being poor in spirit means that we accept the reality that as a human being, we need help. It's that same mindset that we see in groups like AA, NA, and any support group. They walk in, and the first thing they say, hello, my name is, and I am a, like, when we proclaim to be poor in spirit, we make the declaration, hello, my name is Brian, hi, and I need help. It means we aren't depending on social labels or power from society to experience happiness and blessing. Being poor in spirit makes the confession that we need help, that we can neither save ourselves nor fix ourselves. No matter how many pair of figurative boots we get, no matter how much we pay for them, we just can't fully pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. Being poor in spirit means that no matter who we are, we all need help. And ultimately, we all need help from God. It's this posture of lowliness that we see in Luke chapter 1 from Mary. When she claims this bold statement that God has looked on favor with on her with favor, even as she is a lowly servant. Now it's important to note that the call of being poor in spirit is not a call to become poor. But the reality is, the poor know better than any of us what it means to be poor in spirit because they know what it means to depend on God. They know they do not have the resources to make it on their own. They know they need grace, mercy, and a hope that goes beyond their present circumstances. The poor are, perhaps besides Jesus, our best teachers of what it means to be poor in spirit. As activist and author John Deere writes, if we share our lives with the poor and move into downward mobility instead of seeking wealth, perhaps the poor and disenfranchised will share with us the one thing they already have, the reign of God. Again, that's all that matters seeking God's reign of peace for ourselves and every other human being. Being poor in spirit means we recognize that we are all wounded. We are all suffering from trying to make it on our own. And when we realize that all of us are wounded, Friends, that is when we grieve. Grief 
Jesus says it plainly, it's a blessing. And I'm willing to wager a significant amount of money if I did that sort of thing, which I don't. But if any one of us were to go out on 23 Mile Road and ask whoever we see, do you believe that grief is a blessing? I'm willing to wager that at least, at minimum, 9 out of 10 people will look at you like you just came from another planet. And now there are two ways that really go together, um, but two ways to look at this beatitude. The first is that we are to grieve for our own sin and how we have been complicit in the oppression and harm of others. And the second is that we grieve over the brokenness of the world, the pain and losses we all experience. And we are blessed for both of these. This beatitude confronts us with the question, does injustice make us grieve? Here's what I mean. When we recognize that we have done harm to another being and or been a hindrance to the mission of God in the world, we should grieve for that. This is the type of grieving that God calls us to. And when we do that, it not only gives more room for God's kingdom to blossom on earth, friends, it also frees us too. Now, admittedly, it's a temptation to not concern ourselves with the suffering of others. Frankly, that's what we're taught to do in a way. Our world is even structured in ways where it's convenient to ignore the suffering of others. We just want to see the good things in life. We want what makes us feel good. In dealing with the suffering of others, entering into their wounds is inconvenient. And entering into the wounds, may God forbid, actually lead us toward changing ourselves. But when we have courage and take time to enter into the wounds of others and see that we have actually been more complicit than we realize. Friends, that is how God grows our hearts. That's how God makes us more whole. That is how God takes the brokenness of who we are and puts us together. And together as wounded healers throughout the world, we can make the world more whole. This is why the psalmist writes in Psalm 119.36, Turn my heart to your laws, not to greedy gain. Because a core truth of the Jewish law that they're referring to here, which Jesus came to be the fulfillment of, the core truth of the law was to bring good news to the poor and set the oppressed free. 
Friends, there's a truth about grief that generally goes unnoticed. That's that when we have courage and enter into grief, our souls grow, our spiritual life expands. That doesn't mean whatever loss we're grieving is any less painful. It means the loss can become more meaningful. Makes the loss more meaningful. When we grieve with others, we enter into their suffering. Which, friends, that is exactly what Jesus did for us. Enter into our own wounds, our own suffering out of love. And when we have that courage to take time to understand sin that has led to the harm, oppression of others, friends, that is just what Jesus did, and that is what we are called to do by Jesus here. And I want to share some words from, again, this activist, author, priest, uh, John Deere. And I'm going to be honest, uh, when I first read these words, they were very overwhelming. And when we enter into this truth about grief, we shouldn't be overwhelmed all the time. I don't think that's very helpful uh, for us. But his words do give us something to think about. So he asks this. Do you grieve for those who die in war? For those killed by handguns, bombs, drones, lethal injection, and nuclear weapons? For the 30,000 who die each day from starvation and related disease? Do you allow the sorrow of the world's poor and disenfranchised to touch your hearts? Do you recognize global suffering and work to end systemic injustice or do you turn away in denial to postpone your own grief and the suffering of others? To postpone your own inevitable experience of grief. Intense words, overwhelming words, and frankly, we can't... <laughs> Grieve for that all the time, 24-7. We would just be in a big old pile of goo on the floor. But they do speak to a truth. That with so much death and suffering in our world, that is not a world that God, that is not the world God wanted to create. That much death and suffering is not divine inevitability. And as people who follow Jesus, our first step, first thing we should do is mourn, grieve. That type of injustice should affect us, should not paralyze us, should not make us hate ourselves, it should not lead towards self-loathing but it should make us think about the type of world that God is desiring, 
and how we can be part of that. And it starts with grieving the reality of that. Because when the Jewish people heard Jesus say these words, it would have brought to light in their own mind, their t- remember their time in exile, how they, and how even in their present day, they were still existing under Roman occupation. And they would have been grieving that situation, both historically and current. And they would also remember how their sin had led them to exile. The call to grief isn't saying that we only grieve painful losses or only grieve about our own sin. God invites us to do both. Grieve over our own sin about how we have fallen short and grieve over our personal pain that we go through. Friends, the Beatitudes invite us to transform our heart, to be transformed from the inside out. This ancient Jewish audience thought God's kingdom was going to come in a mighty military victory. And as they were living under a horrific Roman Empire, you can't really blame them. And then Jesus comes and says that the kingdom is here for the poor in spirit. It's here for the grieving. It's here for the meek, the peacemakers. It's absolutely bizarre. And yet it's where God resides. Because surely, even as we don't see it, God is in these places. Thanks be to God. Amen.